Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Monday the 21st of August 1972. That was the day that Australia's restless, wandering woman writer went to her rest after an extraordinary life that saw her explore and chronicle the most remote parts of Australia and the people who called them home. Mary Ernestine Hemmings, who'd become famous under the assumed name Ernestine Hill, was born on the 21st of January 1899 in Rockhampton. Ernestine grew up in Brisbane, the only child of a factory manager and a teacher, and she enjoyed a middle-class upbringing, going to a convent school and then on to business college. After working as a typist in the Queensland Public Service for about a year, Ernestine struck out south for Sydney. There, she landed a job with the newly established diggers newspaper, Smith's Weekly. Just 20, Ernestine was secretary to J.F. Archibald, the legend who'd co-founded the Bulletin in 1880 and been its editor. Now J.F. Archibald was working as Smith's literary editor. Ernestine, who had a flair for writing and who'd published a volume of poetry when she was just 17, soon graduated to a job as sub-editor. This put her in the sphere of the newspaper's manager, Robert Clyde Packer. Father to Frank Packer, grandfather to Kerry Packer, and great-grandfather to James Packer. Ernestine wasn't only in R.C. Packer's sphere, she was apparently in his bed, and at the end of October 1924, she gave birth to a son she named Robert. She maintained that the boy's father was R.C. Packer, and this is a view accepted by Sir Frank Packer's biographer, Bridget Griffin Foley. Of course, R.C. Packer never officially acknowledged Ernestine's son. He hardly would have done so, not when he was married and had a son Frank, then an unruly sod, but nevertheless being groomed to be a newspaper mogul. Professional women were scarce in the Australian workforce at this time, but nowhere near as rare as Australian women who travelled solo into the outback. As the Great Depression began, on a retainer from R.C. Packer, who now ran Associated Newspapers, Ernestine Hill moved with her son Robert to WA, where the boy would be cared for by her mother and her aunt. In July 1930, she set out, quote, a wandering copyboy with swag and typewriter to find what lay beyond the railway lines, across the painted deserts and the purling seas, by aeroplane and camel and coastal ship, by truck and lugger and packhorse team and private yacht, the trail has led me across five years and 50,000 miles, a trail of infinite surprises. Ernestine related those infinite surprises not just for the Packer Papers, but for most Australian dailies, as well as the magazine Walkabout. The National Library of Australia's Trove newspaper database has a huge number of Ernestine's original articles. Just a small selection of headlines gives us a snapshot of these early travels. Sydney Mail, 11th March 1931. A backtrack postman, the mail of the Kimberleys. The West Australian, 9th of January, 1932. 
a musician in Broome. The West Australian again, this time from the 12th of March, 1932. A Dying God, Darwin's Joss House. The Sydney Sun, 13th of March, 1932. Grim Tales of the Pearl Game, Where Greed Laughs at Murder. Then there was this one from the Adelaide Advertiser, 22nd of October, 1932. The Road to Gold. There were lots of headlines like this above her sensational reporting about gold finds at the Granites, west of Alice Springs. Hoping this was the answer to their Great Depression prayers, some 300 men rushed out there and ended up enduring terrible conditions until a government expert arrived to condemn the goldfield as unproductive. The short-lived boom had gone bust and Ernestine Hill bore some of the blame. Ernestine Hill wrote from a white perspective and she exalted white settlers over the Aboriginal, Chinese, Malaysian and Afghani people of the Northern Territory, Central and Western Australia. Nevertheless, she was fascinated by these characters and though blinkered by her racism and the racism of the time, she brought their lives, personalities, pursuits and customs to middle-class readers, many of whom likely gave little thought to Australia and Australians beyond the cities and suburbs that they knew. Ernestine was criticised for her purple prose, but what I found fascinating is that in some of her newspaper profiles, she lets her subjects tell their own stories in their own words at length, for better and for worse. In January 1933, she wrote a long feature for the Sunday Mail about Jackie Forbes, also known as Widgety. Widgety was a 54-year-old English-born woman living with an Aboriginal tribe in the Flinders Ranges. Her husband had been a full-blooded Aboriginal man from New South Wales, and he died the previous year. She'd borne him two children, and she'd lived in this bush camp for the past 18 years. Ernestine wrote an introduction, quote, I found her living on Black's rations in the centre of the camp, in a ramshackle whirly of kerosene tins and flapping bags, a cheerful and active-minded little soul with brown eyes and very white teeth. In a welter of dogs and billy pots with a skinned rabbit hanging on a tree, she welcomed me pleasantly and there, in the tiny humpy, with her swarthy little son as witness, recounted the remarkable life story here told for the first time. Laughing, Widgety told Ernestine, quote, Life's a lottery. It was my fate to marry an Australian Aborigine and to spend my life in a blacks camp. I have never regretted it. They are a free, good-hearted people, and in all my 18 years among them, I have made no enemies. In the wake of her husband's death, Widgety said she wasn't moving back to white society. Her story, as recounted to Ernestine, provided insight into Aboriginal customs. Of her sons, she remarked, quote, They speak good English, but better blackfella, and belong to their father's totem. But I mustn't tell you anything about that without first asking Albert, the head man here. I am sorry I cannot show you a photograph of my old man. We never keep the belongings of the dead and always shift camp away from the haunt of their spirit. Right after this, though, in The Sunday Sun, Ernestine published a profile of George Murray, the police constable who led the infamous 1928 mass slaughter of Aborigines that came to be known as the Coniston Massacres. As she had with Widgety, Ernestine began her article with an introduction in which she declared that George Murray had been found by the court to be justified in the killing of 31 people, which was the official toll, though, as we heard in the 16th of August episode, it was far higher. 
This article was also basically one long quote that allowed George Murray to tell his version of events unchallenged. But it was also prefaced by her admiring prose. Quote, to whisper the name of Murray to the blacks of the Lower Territory today is enough to turn the stock boys pale with fright and send the miles in a wild scatter for the bushland. Ernestine called George Murray, quote, the leader of the last of the great punitive police raids that alone have made for the safety of the white man in a black man's country. Then contrasting with this is Ernestine's description of Aboriginal people in her own words from her 1937 book, The Great Australian Loneliness, which collected much of her travel writing. Quote, I like these people. I like their ever-ready laughter, just below the surface at this or that or anything, their wide grins and the melancholy in their dark eyes, their graceful gestures, their soft voices, their infinite patience, their uncomprehendingness of life's complexity, their kinship with the lazy Australia that is so much more theirs than mine. Ernestine Hill's reflections on the plight of the Aboriginal people are today politically incorrect, but there's no doubting her empathy and her sincere desire to understand. Quote, Generous to a fault, here is your true socialist. With no sense of acquisition, no ethics of selflessness or sacrifice, the Australian is content with the fullness and the sunshine of today. Nationhood he does not know. Emulation strikes no note in his consciousness. In the great race of civilization, he is an outsider. Stone Age man, a savage at heart, it is scarcely fair to blame him for the faulty vision of eyes that cannot read sense into our complex codes. Had we white-skinned adopted Australians been wiser and more tolerant, eager to learn instead of teach, we might have gained much that is of value, a comprehensive knowledge of his life and his languages, his arts and his inmost thoughts, that were never more than half articulate and that are now irretrievably lost. During her outback travels, Ernestine also met and befriended the elderly Daisy Bates, who lived for 35 years with remote Aboriginal tribes. In 1938, Daisy published her landmark book, The Passing of the Aborigines, which Ernestine would later say that she'd ghostwritten, a claim that's accepted to a large degree by historians. By then, Ernestine had published her own defining work, The Great Australian Loneliness. Soon after that, she'd returned to Sydney, where she took a job with the ABC and became, for a short time, one of its commissioners. In 1941, Ernestine published what would be her only novel, Based on the life of Matthew Flinders, the book was called My Love Must Wait, the title referring to him marrying his wife, leaving for Australia three months later, and then not coming home for nine years. Over the next seven years, My Love Must Wait sold 100,000 copies, which was a record for an Australian writer whose book had been printed in Australia. During the war, Ernestine had another bestseller of sorts when The Great Australian Loneliness was re-edited, retitled The Frontier, and handed out to American soldiers in Australia to help them better understand their temporary home. For GIs who were stationed, for instance, in Brisbane or Melbourne, this must have been a bewilderingly irrelevant, if enjoyable, read. In 1944, Ernestine was one of five authors who received the first ever Commonwealth Literary Fund fellowships, alongside Xavier Herbert, Miles Franklin, Marjorie Clark, and Frank Dalby Davison. When the Second World War ended, Ernestine and her now adult son Robert hit the road again. Their travels informed several more of her books. 
1947's Flying Doctor Calling recounted how aviators and doctors had conquered the great Australian loneliness. And 1958's Water Into Gold told the story of white settlement in and transformation of the Murray River region. Despite her profile and successes, Ernestine's insecure income, her disinterest in food and her fondness for the Siggies led to her being financially stressed and increasingly unwell as she approached her 60s. Despite her advancing age and declining health, Ernestine believed that she had the bulk of her life's work still ahead of her. An October 1958 Sydney Morning Herald article entitled Writers at Work described the massive material she'd accumulated in her small flat in Cairns, where she was surrounded by papers, clippings, dozens of notebooks, stacks of typewritten manuscript pages, and had a whole second bedroom crammed with yet more material. The Sydney Morning Herald's journalist remarked, her published work is astonishingly small seen in relation to the remarkable list of work to be done. Ernestine was reported to be putting the finishing touches on her epic novel, Johnny Wisecap, which was about an albino Aborigine, and was working on another book about the Cooper River called Blanket Over the Moon. The Sydney Morning Herald reporter wrote she had, quote, a list of enough work to be done to keep half a dozen authors busy for a lifetime. All of these projects were titled in a ledger, and the list included 15 books, 36 short stories, 53 articles, two ballets, and various plays, musicals, radio, and TV scripts. The Sydney Morning Herald article said, quote, It is a formidable collection of work to be done, and the beginnings of them all are in those notebooks, which have been dragged in tin trunks from one end of Australia to the other over the years. While Ernestine would continue to publish articles, anything more substantial went unrealised, except that is for a posthumously published memoir about Daisy Bates entitled Kabali, which was where she made her claim to have written much of the passing of the Aborigines. When the Sydney Morning Herald celebrated the Australian arts with a special supplement on the 17th of July 1972, the liftout came with a wraparound map of Australia inset with images of our most famous and important artists. Ernestine Hill was there in the writers' section, along with other greats such as Patrick White, Kylie Tennant, Ethel Turner, Catherine Susanna Pritchard and Thomas Keneally. Just over a month later, on this day in 1972, Ernestine Hill died in Brisbane at the age of 71. The newspapers reported her passing, saying that her son was going to honour her wishes by burying her under a tree. Unlike her fellow writers in that Sydney Morning Herald liftout and other luminaries such as Miles Franklin, Ernestine Hill has been relegated to relative obscurity. One reason for this was, however well-intentioned, she did write about her indigenous and multicultural subjects from the prevailing white colonialist racist perspective. Another reason was that literary critics derided her as a purveyor of cliché, a purple prose stylist. That said, Henry Lawson's work has been criticised for being racist, while Miles Franklin for a time embraced fascism. And any number of revered 20th century Australian writers could be criticised for being overly florid. In recent years, Ernestine Hill's life and work has been brought out of the shadows, with some of her books reprinted and made available on Kindle. In 2016, Marianne van Velzen also published Call of the Outback, the remarkable story of Ernestine Hill, Nomad, Adventurer and Trailblazer. I'm yet to read it, but I will someday, when I get out from under my own stack of notebooks. 
I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.